This morning, uh, right now, is normally where we would dismiss our kiddos who are third grade and under to their class down the hall, but on the third Sunday of every month, they are in here with us for big church uh, as we open the scriptures together. Uh, and so if you've got a Bible in front of you, you can open with me to Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning, uh, Genesis chapter 1. Um, and as we do, I'll just say a word of welcome to those of you who may be new with us. If you're a guest, we're glad that you're here. My name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and we're glad you've chosen to worship with us, whether you're in person or if you're online this morning watching there as well. Um, if you came in, if you're here in person, you should see a, a, a little card and a seat around you somewhere, which should have on one side of that card some information about yourself, on the other side of that card a place for prayer requests. If you fill one of those out, there's a box the kiosk in the back of the room, you can drop it there on your way out. If you're online or if you're in person as well, and would like to do that electronically, you can go to the homepage of our website. Or if you're in, in, in person, you can scan the QR code on the seat back in front of you, and it'll take you to our digital bulletin. You can find all the announcements there. And you can also find a link to the guest card and prayer request there as well. So if there are things we can pray with you or for you about, it'd be our honor to do that. Don't bear those things alone. Let folks come alongside of you and assist you with that. And if you have questions about Redeemer or just want information about the church, fill out the guest card. We'd love to connect with you. Uh, we launched a new series this morning as we move into a new school year. It's a great time to launch a new series uh, from the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters entitled Foundations. And what our hope is, is that over the course of the next several months of working through uh, the, the, the foundations of the world, essentially, that we were able to gain some clarity on who we are, why we're here in the midst of a culture that has all sorts of narratives for the answers to those questions that oftentimes create a lot of confusion. And so we want to cut through the confusion with some clarity by going back to the beginning. So Genesis chapter 1 is where we're going to start today. I'll read starting in verse 1 down through verse 31. We'll come back and consider it together in our time. Genesis chapter 1 beginning in verse 1 reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And he called the expanse heaven. And there was an evening and there was a morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let, them be lights, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. 
And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. A number of years ago, I bought a pair of sunglasses uh, with some interchangeable lenses. And uh, the beauty of those sunglasses is they are appropriate for a variety of situations. Okay? So if I go fishing, which I tend to do, um, I'm able to put polarized lenses into those sunglasses. And they, what they, polarized lenses do is essentially they cut the glare on the top of the water to allow me to see what's below the surface, to see stumps and to see rocks and to see fish at times if they're shallow enough and the water is clear enough. Comes in very handy every spring when I'm looking for big mammoth bass trying to drop their eggs on beds and trying to pluck them off of those things and get them on the other end of my line for the fight of a lifetime, right? Polarized lenses assist with fishing. Or you can put in like the, the shooter lenses, right? The kind of amber, yellow colored lenses to give you clarity of sight as you're looking downfield at a target. Or you can put in clear lenses. So if you're hiking a trail in the early morning hours and you want to keep the cobwebs out of your eyes from the spiders that have 
have spun their webs across those trails overnight. You can have clear lenses that will protect your eyes but don't produce any sort of light reduction. You can have standard lenses. You can have amber-colored lenses that tint the world around you a particular color. You can have all sorts of lenses that shade the world that you see through them. And as I've thought about those sunglasses over the years, they're perhaps one of the best ways that I can capture the idea of a worldview. It's what a worldview is. is the lenses through which you look at the world. It's the way you see and understand everything around you. It's the way that you process all that you encounter on the earth. Everything physical and everything spiritual. It's a set of lenses through which you see the world. That is a world view. And in the, amid an ever-changing culture, a culture that has a variety of worldviews, a variety of lenses per se, that people are looking at the world through. It's vital for us as believers in this day and age, and perhaps even in every day and age, to have a firm grounding, a foundation upon which we're able to stand, lenses that are thoroughly saturated with Bible through which we see the world. To have a clear understanding of the world in which we live, why things are the way that they are, and ultimately where we've come from, where we are now, and where we're going. Because where we've come from and where we're going helps shape the way that we see where we are in the present. So for the next several months, we're going to journey through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis and see how it forms a way of seeing the world. It provides for us lenses through which we see and process and interpret everything around us. And one of the biggest questions when it comes to forming or framing a worldview is the question, why is there something instead of nothing? It's one of the most foundational questions that every worldview, legitimate worldview, has to give an account for. Why is there something instead of nothing? And for Christians, we find an answer to that question in Genesis chapter 1. But before we get to the text itself... I want to frame up the context of Genesis chapter 1 so that we can understand what the author is trying to communicate to us as he writes. It's important to understand that the creation story in its context and not try to force it to answer modern questions that were not in the minds of its ancient author. Now listen, the Bible is not a science textbook. It's not a scientific explanation for the origins of the world. Rather, it's a theological explanation for the origins of the world. As a result, there are multiple ways to understand creation within the broad framework of orthodoxy, right? The big umbrella of Christian doctrine. You can be a young earth creationist. You can be an old earth creationist. I believe, personally, you can even be a theistic evolutionist. Okay, Someone who believes that God is the one who superintended the entire process of evolution. right? If you want to go that route. Right? And listen, all of these things, young earth, old earth, theistic evolution, right? all of these things are worthy discussions. However, they're not the intent of the author in Genesis chapter 1. 
the author of Genesis chapter 1 is not wrestling with the age of the earth. Rather, he's shaping a worldview in the midst of other ancient worldviews to give an account for why there is something instead of nothing, why creation works the way that it does. Is there any order in the midst of everything that seems to be chaotic? around us. Imagine a world in which there is no radar and all of a sudden you go to bed one night and you're awoken by the sky erupting with thunder and lightning and heavy downpours, right? You had no idea that storm was coming. That seems like chaos erupting on you. Imagine a world with no sonar and you go out onto the ocean and you have no idea how to fathom the depths beneath you. It's all a mystery to you. And in fact, in the ancient world, that's why the oceans and the seas, particularly the tumultuous seas, were an image for chaos, right? Because they had no idea what was beneath or what controlled those currents as they moved from one place to the other. And so in the midst of an ancient culture, the author of Genesis is trying to frame up a worldview that gives an a world works the way that it does. See, nearly every ancient culture had its own creation story. The Egyptians had theirs. The Canaanites had theirs. The Babylonians had theirs. Perhaps the most famous of the creation accounts in the ancient world was the Babylonian Enuma Elish. Okay, say that three times really quickly. Okay, Enuma Elish. And here's how their creation account went. Their head god, okay, the god of their pantheon, his name was Marduk. He was, I don't know why they named him Marduk, but that was his name. Right, he was their, the creator of heaven and earth. And the way that creation came about from a Babylonian perspective all began when Marduk battled the goddess of the oceans, Tiamat. And this is how the Enuma Elish reads. It says, The Lord, speaking of Marduk, spread out his net and circled her. The ill wind he had held behind him, he released in her face. Tiamat opened her mouth to swallow. He thrust in the ill wind so she could not close her lips. The raging winds bloated her belly. So you can imagine all the winds coming in. She's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Her insides were stopped up. She gaped her mouth wide open. He shot off the arrow. It broke open her belly. It cut to her innards. It pierced her heart. He subdued her and snuffed out her life. He flung down her carcass. He took his stand upon it. He split her in two like a fish for drying. (laughs) Half of her he set up and made as a cover heaven. He stretched out the hide and assigned watchmen and ordered them not to let her waters escape. He crossed heaven and inspected its firmament. Now next, Marduk made positions for the great gods. He established constellations in the stars. He made the moon appear in the heavens. And then returning to the other half of the slain goddess, Tiamat, he spread half of her as a cover, establishing the netherworld. Then Marduk said, I shall create humankind. They shall bear the God's burden that they, those may rest. In other words, humanity will be the slaves of the gods so the gods can kick back, eat grapes, have palm fans, and have an easy life. And he made humankind from the blood of the executed traitor god, Quingu. After this, the great gods convened. They made Marduk's destiny highest. They established him forever 
for lordship of heaven and earth. His word shall be supreme above and below. These great gods, listen, the people thought when it came to the Babylonian exile, for instance, that these gods had enabled the Babylonians to overthrow the Israelites, lead them into captivity, right? Early on, this is, this is, this is okay, listen, this is a, a bit tangential to the message. But early on, the Bible was not written down in the form that we have it. It was transmitted through oral, uh, from gener- orally from generation to generation. And when it was finally penned, when it was finally written down, Right? It was read in various contexts. It was written down to a particular audience. And many scholars believe it was written down to the audience in the exile. In the Babylonian exile. Who, who, and the Babylonians believed that indeed their gods had given them victory over Jerusalem. Carrying the people away into exile. And so it was natural for the Israelites to perhaps have been afraid of those gods. But as Jeremiah would seek to comfort Israel. He writes pointedly during the exile in Jeremiah 10.5. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them for they can do no evil. Nor is it in them to do any good. They're powerless. So in this context of the ancient world in which there's so many different worldviews circulating, Yahweh, the God, the covenant God of Israel, speaks to His people to help them understand where they've come from. And this message is written down to help them understand why there is something instead of nothing and why the world works the way that it does. So it's not about the age of the earth, okay? It's a worthy discussion. That's not what Genesis 1 is about. It's framing a worldview in the midst of all the other worldviews. So what is the worldview the author of Genesis is shaping? Let me give you three things this morning. First, that God made everything from nothing. He made everything from nothing. This is what theologians call creation ex nihilo which is Latin, the Latin word for from nothing or out of nothing. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now some scholars believe that that statement is a summary of everything that follows, and some scholars believe it is essentially the first act of creation that God does. I tend to fall in the latter camp, though I'm not a scholar, I tend to fall in the latter camp in that way of thinking. That indeed it's the first act of God creating. Now in Hebrew poetry, they would often state the two ends of extremes in order to communicate everything in the middle. So when you think about what's the difference, what's in between the heavens and the earth? What's in between those two things, church? Everything. Everything. The dry land, the waters, the mountains, the rivers. Okay, the, the, the creepy things that crawl along the ground, the flyy things that fly in the air, right? The swimmy things that are in the, in the depths of the ocean, right? All those things, everything between the heavens and the earth, God has made. In essence, Genesis 1-1 tells us that God has made everything that is something, that there is nothing that is something that God did not make. It tells us the reason there is something rather than nothing is because God has spoken it by His power into existence. 
And in Genesis 1, there are two words that are used to describe creation or creating or making. One is translated create. The other one is translated made. One describes, listen church, one describes the taking of raw materials that already exist and forming them into something new. The other describes the bringing into existence of something that has not previously existed. And this word is used six times in Genesis 1. In particular, the first time in Genesis 1-1, whenever God creates the heavens and the earth, He brings something into existence that had not previously existed by the power of His Word. So God made everything from nothing. Now, there are those in our day and time who would want to push back against an understanding of the world, an understanding of our universe as, having a, as being sourced in the, a divine origin. Right? I, I, my son earlier this week was having a conversation with a friend of his at school who was talking about, uh, basically, the, his, his, one of his friends was saying that the Bible was not valid because it's just an ancient book written thousands of years ago and, and by the way, I was very proud of the way that Caleb uh, was, was truthful yet gracious in his responses to him, right? defending what he believed on the basis of what he had been taught. But listen, there are people like his friend in schools, in school systems, in, in management and companies, in universities, and play all, people all across every strata of society who believe that the Bible is just an ancient text that cannot be trusted today. So how can we th- then base our belief and understanding that God created the world off of this ancient book? Right? That's where the field of apologetics comes in, church. Helping to defend our faith on the basis of not only internal evidence from the Scriptures, but also external arguments as well. Let me give you one of them. Let me give you one. And it's called, within apologetics, it's it's an argument commonly known as the fine-tuning argument. The fine-tuning argument. Now, what the fine-tuning argument says is this. There's certain laws of physics that are hard-coded, right, at the most fundamental levels of reality. And modern science recognizes somewhere north of 20 of these physical constants that must exist in order for life on earth to exist. And the fine-tuning argument looks at these factors that must exist in the way that they do for life to exist and says that, and basically analyzes the exact quantity of each of these physical constants and the ratios they must be held in in order for life to exist. And they say in most cases, the tiniest change in one direction or the other to one of those constants would not only prohibit life as we know it, but it would make most forms of life impossible, most forms of matter impossible. So the universe, they say, is not only fine-tuned for some specific kind of life, but fine-tuned for for any kind of existence at all. And the probabilities involved with the fine-tuning of the universe, listen, they're not comparable with the odds of winning the lottery, okay? The odds of winning the lottery, if you play, okay, are like 1 in 10 to the ninth power, okay? Let's up the ante a little bit, right? If you were to take a deck of cards and you were to deal that deck, 52 playing cards, deal that deck of cards by suit in order, right? After you had shuffled them, okay? 
the odds of dealing that deck of cards after multiple shufflings in order is somewhere in the ballpark of one, one in 10 to the 68th power. That's one with 68 zeros behind it. But the physical constants being what they are to produce life and matter on the face of the earth is somewhere in the ballpark of 1 in 10 to the 120th power. That's a lot of zeros. And so they use the illustration at times of life, intelligent life being like a treasure hidden in a safe whose dial has millions of numbers, right? If you ever, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a combination lock, because you, 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 don't, you don't have lockers at school anymore, okay? And so your combination locks, whenever you went up and you turned the dial to the left three times, and then you turned it back to the first number, turned it all the way around, to the, to came to the second number, and then turned it back just barely to the third number, right? And then you opened the lock, Right, but imagine a combination lock with millions of digits, with millions of combinations. And those millions of numbers had to have, have the exact proper combination or sequence of turnings in order to be able to open the safe. If you get any single digit wrong anywhere, you have no result whatsoever. It's not like it can be partially cracked open. Right? It's either all the way open or it's all the way closed. And there's no way to open that door unless you get the, the millions of those digits all aligned properly. And if so if someone opened that million-digit lock, which is more reasonable to believe? That they did so by chance, by just randomly turning the dial enough times to where they finally got the millions of combinations all exactly right? Or that the person knew the exact combination, which is more reasonable to believe. That's the fine-tuning argument, that these constants exist in this 1 in 10 to the 120th power. Those astronomical odds, which is more reasonable to believe, that that happened by chance or accident or by the intelligent design of someone who knew the exact combination that would be required to sustain intelligent life on the face of the earth. God made everything from nothing. The heavens and the earth and everything in between. He didn't just take something that already existed and reshape it. He made everything from nothing. The second thing I believe this text teaches us is that God made everything good. He made everything good. In verse 31, we read, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. See, at the end of chapter 1, God stands back and beholds all that He's made, the heavens above, the earth beneath our feet, the sea and the dry land, the lesser and the greater lights, the sun and the moon, all the stars, the fish, the birds, the land mammals, and finally the capstone of His creative work, humanity being made in His image. He stands back, takes all of that in, and He says, Behold, it is very good. Now, when we think of good, church, we tend to think of good in terms of its moral equivalency. In other words, good versus evil. Okay? That's what we tend to think of. 
However, in the Old Testament, the word good had a variety of meanings. It could mean good in the moral sense, but it could also mean pleasant. It could also mean beautiful. It could also mean delightful. It could also mean glad, joyful, precious, correct, or righteous. And what I I don't think God is doing is standing back at the end of all of His creative work and saying, Behold, everything is morally good. Though it is, because sin has not yet entered the world. That would be a true statement. But I believe what He's doing, He's standing back and He's saying, Behold, everything, everything is beautiful. Everything is right. Everything works correctly as it should. That's what God is stepping back and saying. It's, it, and it brings him great pleasure. See, God's work in creation is first and foremost. He stands back and says, everything is working like it should. And everything that I've designed, I've designed for the good of those that I'm placing here on the earth and for my glory. If you notice, there's a, there's a, there's a logical sequence to and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, all throughout His creative works on the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, but then you get to the sixth day, it says, then God said. There's a logical sequence, days one through five, then a temporal sequence, a temporal modifier on day six. Here's what I believe God is doing. In verse one, He creates everything out of nothing. Then that word for form, right, taking raw materials that already exist and shaping them into something, that shows up in, in, in day, on, on, day, on, on day one, day two, day three, as God takes the earth that was without, without form, it was void, lacked substance, and it begins to order everything logically. Put everything in its proper place. Then God introduces humanity into this environment that He has created and fine-tuned for their existence. That's what He's doing in Genesis chapter 1. And He does so for our good that we would be able to flourish in the world that God has made. But He also does it for His glory. He does it for His glory. David reflects upon what God has done by bringing the whole of the created order into existence. He writes in the first half of the 19th Psalm, he says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. In other words, you step back and you look at all that God has made, and it is screaming the glory of God. When you step back and you peer out upon the horizon and you see the mountains and you see the valleys and you see the stars and you see the sun and you see the moon in its phases, you see this, it's screaming the glory of God. That He made it for our good and for His glory. Now church, one of the things that means for us is this. Right? You're like, what? Okay, God made everything out of nothing. He made everything good. What does that mean for me? It means this. The doctrine of creation tells us that our most delightful pleasures and our deepest joys are all an echo of Eden. They're all an echo of glory. While our dull aches and our most devastating pains in this life, you know what those are? They're symptoms of homesickness. This is the world that was made for us and the world that we were made for. 
The world doesn't stay that way, obviously. We'll see that in several weeks whenever we get to Genesis chapter 3. But this is what we were made for and what was made for us. And so our deepest joys, the things that bring us most pleasure, right? they're echoes of God's glory and creation, of us enjoying Him. And the things that cause us the greatest, deepest wounds. You know what those are evidence of? That we were made for a world other than the one that we're living in now. They are a homesickness. C.S. Lewis in his pinnacle work, The Weight of Glory, he said it this way. In speaking of this desire for our own far off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret which also pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation the mention of it becomes close and near, we grow awkward and and, and laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that has settled the matter. And then he says this, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are all good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. In other words, Lewis is saying this, that every good, pleasant, and beautiful thing that we enjoy in this life is like the scent of a flower that we've never seen before, and we spend our whole life searching for it. They're like the echoes of a, of a sound coming out of Eden that we can hear, but we cannot see where it's come from. They're like the news, he says, of, that's come from this far-off country that we've never visited, but we're only receiving reports from. So he says everything from a good meal, right, to good relations in our marriages is an echo of Eden. Everything from the majesty of the creation that we behold with our eyes is an echo of Eden. Everything from the satisfaction that we receive from hard work. At the end of a a long day of hard work, when you step back and you say, job well done, as an echo of Eden. So also is the relaxation of a good vacation. See, it's not that non-Christians can't enjoy these things. But they cannot enjoy them as deeply as Christians. Because Christians don't just see the thing. But they savor the person behind the thing. Because so often non-Christians, those whose hearts are bent by sin, what they end up doing is they end up taking the thing and making it into the ultimate thing itself. When Lewis says, listen, if we do that, we turn it into a dumb idol. And it will never bring us what we think it can bring us. 
But if we see the person behind the thing, then our hearts are drawn to Him in worship and, 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 and glorifying God, which we were made to do. God made everything good. And when we experience the goodness of what God has made, it is the sweetest joys. When you hear the sound of a baby cry, as it emerges from the womb of its mother, it's an echo of Eden. The cry of the mom is something different. <laughs> okay? It is something different. Third, and finally, God made everything from nothing. He made everything good. And what I believe the author of Genesis 1 is trying to teach us here is that what we ought to do as those whom God has made in His image. And by the way, we'll take a look at the image of God separately for three separate weeks. Okay? But what God is trying to teach us who have been made in the image of God that we ought to do in response to Him making everything from nothing and making everything good is that we ought to acknowledge the supremacy of God in creation. See, the claim that Genesis 1 is making is this, that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is supreme over everything that He's made. The heavenly bodies, listen, that were worshipped by these other cultures, that, it, that Israel had exposure to by these other worldviews. He says, all those stars that you think are gods up there, He said, God made those with a word of His mouth. And He's supreme over them. At the beginning of Genesis 1, we see the words, in the beginning, God. See, before anything was, God is. I want you to think about that for a moment. Before anything else exists, before any molecule or particle, before any matter or mammal, before any plant or person, before any dirt or water, before anything and everything, there is God. Supreme. Self-existent, right? What theologians call God's aseity, that He is absolutely self-existent. A.W. Tozer, a theologian in the 20th century, said it this way. He said, Almighty God, just because He's almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous, ingratiating God, one who's seeking to please and fawning over men and women to win their favor, is not a pleasant one. Yet if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity, he says, has put God on charity. In other words, God's receiving charity from us. He's trying to win our affections and we're just giving Him our leftovers. He says, so lofty is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy, not to say enjoyable, to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is that God is not greater for our being, nor would He be less if we did not exist. That we do exist is all God's free determination, not by our own reward, nor by divine necessity. He says essentially this, that God exists whether you or I ever existed or not. That you or I existing does not add anything to God or take anything away from God. Right? He's the only being who needs no one and nothing, but He creates and loves everyone and everything. In a very real sense, God is the only non-codependent being in the universe. Okay? 
Because whether you want to admit it or not, all of us have a little bit of codependency in us. God is the only one who is non-codependent. And the very first verse of Genesis, which is the very first word of the Bible, as it was arranged in its earliest copies, it begins with God. He's supreme over it all. In fact, God is referenced 35 times in the creation account. He is the actor who dominates the action on the screen. And yet in our modern culture, by, in accordance with our modern sensibilities, we believe that not only are we actors on the stage of human history, but we're also the author, we're also the director, we're also the producer, we're also the editor. Right? Now all those people have a part to play in the making of a movie. Right? But truth be known, there's not a single one of us that is the author of our own destinies. That our days were numbered in God's book in Psalm 139. The days that were formed for me, yet when out there was none of them. Right? God has the copyright on it all and is the copywriter for all of us. Yet despite the fact that God is the author who's written all the copy for creation and for our lives, and He owns the copyright, our, our culture wants to encourage us to write our own copy and paint with our own brush, establishing our own copyright over our own lives. And yet if we understand what the author of Genesis is saying, is that God's supreme over not only all the immaterial creation that He's made, but also you and I, as those made in His image. And the way that we acknowledge His supremacy in our lives, listen, is by submitting ourselves to His purpose. And we're told in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, Isaiah 43, verse 21, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. The reason God reached into the dust of the earth and He formed Adam, and then he reached into the rib, the side of the man, and formed the woman. The reason God does that is for his own glory, that out of their mouths they might declare his praise. And listen, church, he has created them, male and female, a part of acknowledging the supremacy of God in creation, is to bring him function as our purpose. Right? The purpose with which God designed us. Because everything that's made has a purpose, doesn't it? Right? For instance, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. If, if I tried to take my MacBook Air that was created to access the internet, was created to word process, was created to design presentations, it was created to, to do all the, a lot of complex things I have no idea it has the capabilities to do. Okay? Um, and it runs on the basis of all these operating systems, and it is a high-dollar piece of tech, and I try to use that high-dollar piece of tech as a hammer. Okay? Right? Man, I don't know what happened to my hammer. There's a nail here. I, wow! What's going to happen to that high-dollar piece of tech? It's going to shatter eventually. Okay? That aluminum case protecting it is not going to stand up to the iron nail that I'm trying to drive into the wood. It's going to break it. Right? But if I took a hammer and I tried to build a presentation to show to the church, I'm going to be out of luck, aren't I? Because that 
hammer was not designed for the purpose of building presentation. It was designed for the purpose of driving nails. And listen, whenever we step outside of the purpose for which we were designed, which is, Isaiah says, God forms us to bring Him glory, to declare His praise. And we say, you know what? You're not the author. I'm the author, right? You can be an actor in my life, but I'm going to be the author of my own story. I'll let you play a little side role here, right? Because I want to pursue my own agenda. We're essentially taking the MacBook and slamming it against an iron spike, destroying ourselves as we go against the purpose for which God has created us. And there's perhaps no more visible way that people have done this in our modern era than by undermining the reality that God created male and female. And we'll see that more as we take a look at the image of God in the next several weeks. But the way that we acknowledge His supremacy in creation is by yielding to the purpose for which He's created. You and I would bring Him glory. Listen, church, God made everything from nothing. That we do not exist here by random chance. But He has formed us and formed an environment in which we may flourish in all the things that we enjoy, right? That, that are pleasant and beautiful, are echoes of Eden. All the suffering that we endure are shockwaves of the fall. And He made us so that we would acknowledge His supremacy. My hope is over the next several months that these foundations will begin to form the way that we think about the world, the way that we think about our lives, and the way that we live in the world that God has made. So let me pray for us as we close this morning. Father, we thank You so much for not leaving us in the dark with regards to where we've come from and not leaving us in the dark with regards to where we are headed we're able to make sense of where we are I pray you help us to do that in the months ahead would you form for us a thoroughly biblical worldview help us to see through the lenses of scripture and understand why things are the way things are why things work the way things work why things don't work in our lives the way they don't work in our lives. And, fa <clears throat> and Father, would you help us make sense of the realities of a broken and fallen world. Help us to see through the lens of Scripture be able to interpret not only our own actions and our own desires and our own motives, but interpret the world in which we live. Remind us that we are not here by chance. Remind us that what you made, you made good. And remind us that you made everything good for your glory. And may we be a part of that purpose of bringing you praise. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, church, as we continue in worship, we'll celebrate the Lord's table together this third Sunday of the month. Paul says uh, in Romans chapter 8, he says, You know, God indeed did make everything good, but on account of sin and the fall, that all of creation is subject to futility until one day 
the revelation of the sons of God, whenever God comes to fully redeem his people, what's going to happen with creation? It's going to be set free from its bondage to decay as well. So one day, all that God that has made, all that God has made that is good will enjoy in all of its fullness in eternity. But the only way we're able to do that is because of Christ. So this morning as we come to the table, we remember his body that was broken for us. We remember his blood that was shed for us. That not will one day, that, one, that here and now puts us in right relationship with him and will one day unify us together fully with him, but will also one day allow us to live in this new heaven, new earth, whenever everything is restored, everything works right, and God's able to step back once again and say, behold, it is very good. That's coming one day, all because of the cross because of the person and work of Christ. As we come to the table this morning, we come in remembrance of His work on our behalf. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, whether you're a member of this church or not, if you've placed your confidence in Christ, we invite you to the table. If you're not a Christian in the room this morning who has never crossed the line of faith, placed your trust in Christ, we just invite you to sit and witness as we come and receive the Lord's table. But keep coming to Redeemer. Because every week we talk about this God who has made us and this Christ who has saved us. And so our hope will be over the course of time that you hear about Him and God opens your eyes to see and your ears to hear and your heart to love Him so that one day you come to the table with us. But if you're not a Christian, just stay seated where you are as we come to the table and receive the bread and the cup this morning. I invite you to stand as the band leads us in song and we respond by coming to the table.